0: Yeah, particularly with they. <laughs> okay, let's start. Well, good evening, everybody. Um, what I want to talk about this evening is something that often doesn't get talked about, which is actually ethics in this tradition and morality. And, Really, if I had a title for this, which I probably will append to it eventually, which is, uh, can we learn to be good? I think the Buddhist tradition has a very quick answer to that, which is, yes. Okay, I'm going now. (laughs) (laughs) So, what we're going to do, I'm going to try and do is examine this, and perhaps I'm going to drop in a few... Comments also following on from a Kinchino last night around ethics with a, a not-self, because that's an interesting one, um, if we can get there, and I've got enough time to do this. Okay, well, you come, and you come to a retreat like this, and the first evening, invariably, you get a list of the precepts, don't you? And it was me that was doing it. <laughs> um, you get a list of these precepts. Training precepts is, uh, to give them their correct title, ways of training ourselves, ways of investigating our moral ethical behavior. Now, I don't want to cover all the ground that I covered on the first night we were together, but obviously these are important, otherwise they wouldn't be invariably um, delivered each time you come on retreat. These precepts and training rules are, if you like, a constant throughout most forms of Buddhism. Not just the, the Buddhist tradition of the early tradition. Uh, it goes all through into Japanese and Chinese Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and everything else. And monks' rules, I mean, if you think you're doing, you know, you're pretty under a strain having five or ten as the maximum, you know, if you're, a, if you're a Buddhist monk in the Theravada tradition, you get 227. If you're a monk in the Mahayana, you get 253. Yeah, so, getting up to 253 in some of the traditions anyway. So, there's a lot of rules out there. Um, but is this ethics? I think, again, we can give a quick answer. No, it isn't. They're training. This is what we're using them for. They're to train us. I want to step back just for a second before I pursue that line of thought and really think really make a statement, which I hope to justify through the course of the talk, which is if this tradition, this tradition of meditation, cultivation as we've been calling it, um, far better term, cultivation and mind training and all the things that we're involved in has any meaning whatsoever, it has to affect your behavior. Yeah? It has to affect how you are out there in the world ordinarily, not how you are in retreat. Yeah? How you are in retreat um, is a very, as you can see, it's a beautiful environment, but it's a very cloistered environment. It's very separated from all of those distractions, of course, which are basically the ones that inflict themselves on us in just everyday life. Yeah. A friend of mine who used to run a meditation center in Sri Lanka um, used to call people in after they'd been on retreat. It was a long-term retreat center, although people could go for shorter courses, but in general, they went for long times and long periods. And he would call them in after a while and um, basically give them an interview, see how they were doing. And he would say to them things like, are you feeling calm? And some of them would say, yes, I'm really feeling a lot calmer now. Are you gaining insight? Yes, I think I've had some insights now. And there would be a whole list of questions like this, basically checking out how they're doing. And, and a lot of the people after you know, three months or so would be doing quite well and feeling a lot calmer, a lot less flustered, a lot less bombarded by the stuff that bombards us normally in life. And at the end of this, after this checklist, he would go, okay, now go to Candy, which was the local town. And it was a typical Asian town, very, very busy, very, very noisy, very, very chaotic. And he says, if you can survive that, you're getting somewhere. Yeah. That was the test, and the test was the the interactions that you would have with others as you walked out in that. And I really want to put that right up front, because in a sense, that's where this huge 5th century commentary, um, which is sometimes referred to, I can't remember if the Kinchin referred to it last night, but it's certainly very important in Theravada Buddhism, which is called uh, the Visuddhimaga um, by Buddhaghosa. Where does it start? It starts with what is loosely translated as morality, sila. It starts with that, and some of the comments at the beginning of that basically say all of this meditation practice that you're likely to do, if it's not grounded on some kind of moral discipline, and actually a lot of early Buddhism is about moral discipline and restraint, um, then it really is not worth a lot. It's interesting, isn't it? because we spend so much time in in what I call Western Buddhism, the kind of Buddhism that we pursue, whether we call ourselves Buddhist or not, loosely, if we use that term, we spend a lot of time pursuing the meditation practices and the higher, almost um, intellectual inquiries which are there within Buddhism, even down to the Anatta um, talk that Kinchino gave and don't spend a lot of time paying attention to our behaviors. Yeah, and it's a sad fact that we don't spend a lot of time um, uh, really looking at our behaviors in the world, looking at our speech, looking at our actions, and obviously looking at potently their driving force, which of course is our thought patterns. Now of course meditation is there to deal with that, but unless it translates in terms of the other two, it really is not worth a lot. I hope you can see that. This is why Again, coming back to where I launched in this evening, this is why, of course, that the precepts are such a fundamental aspect of this training. Learning to look at matters of harm, learning to look at matters of surrounding that which isn't offered to us freely, and, and we know very clearly that it's offered to us freely. Looking at matters around sensuality. not just sexuality. I mean, this is such a misnomer, such a way, mistranslation in many ways of what's important within that precept. It's about overindulgence in anything, Um, particularly, as I kind of joked on the first night, with relation to food, Um, gluttony, for example. So it's looking at our sensuality. It's looking at our speech, and this is such an important dimension, isn't it? Our speech. We, We are as I suggested on that first evening, we are, we are speaking animals. We speak constantly. We never stop. We're rabbiting away you know, all the time. You know. um, <laughs> you know, as one thinker once said, we, we speak in our dreams. You know, we speak when we're reading. We speak when we're silent. And then we speak. So we're always speaking. We're never not speaking. And so the quality of that speech and the way that it affects others is extremely important. So automatically we start talking about this. Automatically we start talking about our relations with others. And, of course, speech wouldn't be at all important if we lived in a completely isolated, solitary world, particularly, would it?
1: Yeah.
0: Speech is about our intercommunication. It actually is a recognition of others automatically that I'm communicating, whether I'm speaking in my head or speaking out there directly. But it's really indicative of our being in a world with others. You know, like it or loathe it, that's the way it is. You know, we're in a world with others. By the way, they're not just out there to irritate you. <laughs> you know, as we can often behave as if they are. People are out there. Or as Sartre put it, You know, hell is other people. (laughs) His idea of hell was being locked in a room for eternity with two other people. (laughs) So when we start to think about even just that common phenomena of speaking, we are almost inescapably drawn into the realm of ethics. Yeah, drawn into this realm. It's interesting, of course, in, in Buddhist languages there's really no direct word which encompasses our word ethics in many ways. You know, the closest we get to it is sila, which is really moral discipline.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, it has within it an element which implies training and the disciplined training at that. But this is not the totality of what we do. Rule following is not really just what it's about. I would suggest to you, I'll leave you this, to think about this, to dwell on this, that we could perfectly well follow lots of rules and be completely unethical. Yeah? Does that make sense? So rule following and our ability to follow rules simply isn't what ethics is about or morality, and I'm going to use those words interchangeably for the start of this talk and then separate them out because I think they're two separate dimensions ultimately. So, ethics. Um, well, if you go back, it's a Greek word. Yeah? And one of its meanings in Greek is the way that we dwell. It actually has a, in the, has a sort of uh, root to it, which actually means about dwelling in this world, how we dwell on this wor- in this world. The Greek word is ethos, which you probably know completely used in a different way now. But it's the way that we dwell in the world. So when we start talking about ethics, it's about a quality of dwelling in this world shaping ourselves in some way um, that we can dwell in this way that also allows ourselves to flourish and those who are around us to flourish in, and to live in some degree of harmony together. Yeah? And it's a basic, in a sense, what ethics is really about. It's not the total story, but at its minimum, this is what we're trying to do. This is why I say it's so important, isn't it, the way that we live with others. If our meditation is to mean anything, coming back to that, and I'm going to keep almost mantrically like mentioning this, if our meditation practice is to mean anything, it has got to affect that quality of the way that we live in this world. It's got to affect ultimately a quality of our perceptions yeah, about the way that we dwell in this world. I suggested at, um, I think it was yesterday afternoon, when introducing you know, my version of the metta practice, that metta isn't just a state of mind, it's a way of seeing the world. And this is one of the virtues that we could call an ethical virtue. Yeah. Seeing the world in a particularly, particular way, if you like, almost literally and metaphorically with the eye of friendliness. Yeah. Think of how different that is, to view this world with the eye of friendliness. Not with the eye of disgust, not with the eye of resentment, not with the eye of anger. And in fact, many of those states, um, these more morally dubious states, ethically dubious states, actually do not add to our sense of connectedness with others, but actually cut us off from them. I think we see this clearly in some English phrases, you know, that we quite commonly use in anger, the blindness of anger. Yeah. It made me see red. Yeah. All of these, in a sense, bespeak of a, a cut-offness from the other. So ethics and morals, and again, not making a distinction as yet, but ethics and morals is to bring us close to to bring us into connectedness, to bring us into relationship with others so that we can flourish in this world. The Greeks have a lovely word for it, which is eudaimonia, which is about human flourishing. How can we flourish but also attain some degree of peace of mind along with others? doesn't sound a lot of difference from some of the Buddhist, if you like, the trajectory of Buddhist practice and Buddhist thought, does it, in that way? Yeah, They're yeah. going in a similar direction. What, of course, the Buddha does is encourage us to develop virtues, yeah. to really concentrate on and develop virtues. I would even go so far as to say not just virtues, but psychological states which are wholesome. Yeah psychological states that bring about that connectedness with others so that we can live in a flourishing environment. Yeah. So this is basically the foundation of Buddhist ethics. At its minimal, going back to the precepts, you know, coming in on that first evening, you can hear the precepts as a thou shalt not list. Remember I said to you, this is one way of viewing it, but it's not the most fruitful way of viewing this. When we view it as a thou shalt not list, in a sense it's the default. Yeah. If we have doubts, if we have ambiguities in our life, let's see if we can move towards a position that does no harm, that doesn't take what is not, is not offered, that doesn't engage in sensual misconduct that doesn't, you know, so on and so forth, all the way to the end of the precepts here. Yeah. So it becomes a default mechanism. So the rules themselves are there, and it's quite clear. You know, as I said, 227, let's just stick with the Theravada rule, 227 rules, you know, for the monastics, you know, slightly more for the nuns. Um, and that historically grew up, and it's partly to do with relationships of men and women in India at that period. But we get slightly more rules for the women, but there's a lot of rules. There's a lot of training rules there, and they are about rules of community living, how to live in community. Yeah. Well, actually, we're a big community, aren't we? In that sense, okay, we might not be a monastery or a nunnery, um, or a vihara, to use a dwelling place, in the kind of tra- strictly traditional Buddhist point of view, but we are a community. Yeah. We are a sangha, if you want to use, the again, the Buddhist terminology here. We are a sangha. How do we live together? We're going to need some basic ground rules. The basic ground rules become our morality. Yeah. It's what we agree upon in some senses, in different communities and different... Traditions agree upon, in a sense, different ground rules that they live by. Yeah. And we can have a moral relativism. You know, uh, Western liberal societies have completely different moral precepts in place to say within uh, an Islamic traditional culture, for example.
1: Yeah.
0: And they seem very at odds,
1: yeah.
0: again. So the morals themselves are what helps harmonious living of our living together, helps us to interrelate as human beings, helps in a way to decrease egotism within society because it becomes a, a, a sort of apparent and really elevation, apparent and both a real elevation of our sense of community, of being together. Yeah. So, the moral rules that we live by, as I say, we take the word morals, it's based on the Latin more, yeah. which is consensus.
1: Yeah.
0: We have these consensus within us, within our societies, which allow us to live that way. Again, I'm going to make a statement here, making this division between morals and ethics, that we can be completely moral, but completely unethical. Yeah because it's just, again, about rule-following that I went on about. So the moral aspects of our society are extremely important for harmonious living together. They aid to our human flourishing. I tend to think it's rather adolescent when we try to abandon all the morals of our society. Great at the age of, I don't know, 15 to 17. Not so wise when you're slightly older. To be doing that, to be rebelling against every rule that's there within our society. Because some of them actually are very innocuous, aren't they? Yeah. Very, very innocuous. They just allow us um, to behave with each other in respectful ways. Yeah. And the precepts themselves, coming back to that, I'm not going to really move too far away from the precepts through the whole of this talk. The precepts themselves, of course are ways that we develop self-respect as well. In fact, there is a term, which I'm going to mention a bit later on, which is there as a psychological characteristic, which in a sense is our ethical compass, which is actually about self-respect and can be translated as self-respect here. And so self-respect is about the individual, but it is also within that moral framework about learning to respect others. And again, I don't know if that strikes you as interesting, but, you know, developing good behavior, virtuous behavior, allow us to not only to respect the other, but to develop self-respect for ourselves within that virtuous behavior. It's, again, interesting that in some early Buddhist texts it says, you know, living the moral life, living the ethical life, allows us to sleep well. And I think here is a metaphor. It just says you don't have too much to be worried about in regard to your behavioral, you know, in regard to your behavioral being in the world. So it's... An extremely important element, but, as I suggested when introducing the precepts, if we just leave it at that, then we start to, in a sense, shrink them into something which I think is, and warp them out of, out of shape, into something which they're not, which is just a set of rules. Yeah. I would suggest that to be really ethical means to inquire into our forms of behavior, to inquire into our forms of speech, to have an awareness of what our speech does and what it does particularly to others and how that speech can be respectful and harmonious or it can be its opposite, disrespectful and unharmonious. And I might suggest that egotism, when it's rampant and frequent, Uh, with a lot of the first-person pronoun, can often be very disrespectful. Let me give you an example. Again, it's a literary example. As you probably gathered, I like to draw sometimes on literary examples. Let's just bring it up. And I think it constitutes the lack of reciprocity that we often see in conversations. This one is gendered. And I don't think it's any accident that it's gendered uh, in this conversation that takes place. And it's it's an extract from a novel by Virginia Woolf. Um, Some of you might have read it. It's called The Years. Uh, And in this, it's a conversation that's taking place between a young man and a woman who's a doctor. And it goes like this. It's it's not very long, but it says, um, Her attention wandered. She had heard it all before. I, 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 he went on. It was like a vulture's beak pecking, or a vacuum cleaner sucking, or a telephone bell ringing. I, I, I. He couldn't help it, not with that nervous, drawn, egotist's face, she thought, glancing at him. He could not free himself, could not detach himself. He was bound on the wheel with tight tight iron hoops. He had to expose, had to exhibit. But why let him, she thought, as he went on talking. For what do I care about his I, I, I? Or his poetry. Let me shake him off then, she said to herself, feeling like a person whose blood had just been sucked leaving all her nerve ends pale. She paused. He noted her lack of sympathy. He thought her stupid, she supposed. I'm tired, she apologised. I've been up all night, she explained. I'm a doctor. The fire immediately went out of his face when she said, I. That's done it. Now he'll go, she thought. He can't be you. He must be I. She smiled, for he got up, and off he went. <laughs> Does that strike you as being <laughs> some conversations you might have engaged in? <laughs> yeah. I think what's so indicative about that is the, the, the lack of connection. Connection the lack of connectedness. In many ways, what we can see is that prevalence of the I, 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 as Virginia Woolf puts it, of course, is that lack of connectedness, that withdrawn egotism that doesn't allow us to be with somebody else. Now, it might be that we're not using that first-person pronoun, but we are still taking somebody's time. Do you remember I said that, taking what is not offered? taking someone's time, we can do that with our egotistical talk, our lack of connectedness. So many times, I think, that we don't pay enough attention to speech and its ethicality, whether it's harmonious, connected, bringing about and actually saying something. I think one of the great benefits of being in silence is actually we begin to become aware sometimes how, some, how little needed sometimes speech is,
1: yeah.
0: how almost speech becomes a reflexive knee-jerk reaction to space, emptiness. Yeah demands attention from the other. Now, I'm only just using this as an example because it is such an important human example of our embeddedness. And so when we start to talk about practice, practice isn't just sitting on the cushion, developing nice states of mind, which I hope you do do, developing nice states of mind and having beautiful insights into things, but it's actually beginning to look at these very human interactions these very human interactions. And if we pay attention to them, again, here's the mantra. It doesn't really speak very well of our meditative understanding of what we have cultivated. What have we cultivated? It's a good question, isn't it, to ask ourselves every time, what am I cultivating here? What am I actually cultivating here? Am I cultivating my egotism? Or am I cultivating my connectedness? It's quite clear in the virtues that the Buddha outlines which are there within the Brahma Viharas, and some of those are very very much about interconnectedness, about being with others, being with others in ways which are not destructive, but actually bring out something which is good in both the other and ourselves, but even if it doesn't with the other, at least in ourselves, um, it's clear that those virtues are there in the Brahmaviharas as that friendliness, as that compassion, and also that appreciation of the other. All too often neglected. Because actually, at its worst, itself, I would suggest, again, I'll leave you to think about this, because this is not meant to be just I'm going to tell you everything. I want you to think about some of these things and perhaps reflect on them in some of the quieter moments is that meditation, when pursued in the wrong way itself, of course, can become an unethical behavior. You can see this when, for example, it's not sensitive to others. It doesn't matter how distressed you are tonight. um, I can't possibly see you because I've got to do my practice. (laughs) I've got to get on and do my practice. Now we can see, again, that that's pulling against what the actual spirit of this practice is again. It's a crude example, I know, and, apologize, and I apologize for the crudity of it, but I hope it makes a point. Yeah. I hope it gets something across about the way, in effect, sometimes meditative practice, because it's done solo, on a cushion, on your own, walking up and down, or, as I say uh, in this particular mode, can be isolated and cut off from others. Yeah. So we really have to make an effort. Yeah. We really have to make an effort to get out there and to communicate with people. So cultivation isn't just about cultivating on the cushion, cultivating on the walking path, all the ways that we've suggested, and I'm not wishing to undermine them and say they're unimportant. Of course they're not. They really, really are important, but they're important in the service of something. Yeah. That's the ethical foundation of it. If they're in the service of the development of just human egotism, personally, I don't find much interest in it. If it's, div- if it's there in the service of development of a degree of connectedness and being with each other in more respectful ways, even if the other is not respectful, at least I can be. Yeah? At its bare minimum, at least I can reflect on what it might mean to say something to this person, to be with this person, even if they are not reflecting it back to me in this way. So this is where it really, this is where it really is important. And of course, all of this is laid out, and you know, you'll find if you look around, um, there are a few. They're few and far between, comparative with all the endless books and shelves of them on meditation, um, which, I, if you have them, please do read them. You know, unfortunately, you know, the, <laughs> the attaining of some degree of insight and wisdom does not occur by osmosis, <laughs> by having the books on your shelves. You really need to do read them and to reflect on what's being said. But that is a aside. When we look at these shelves and shelves of books, you will find the odd occasional book on ethics, and sometimes they try to reduce Buddhist ethics to a system. And one thing I would clearly say about Buddhist ethics is it's not a system. Yeah. It has different elements within it. You know, if you wanted to compare it with Western ethical systems, it will have family resemblances to many of them, but is not reducible to any one of them. Yeah. That is because of a very important reason about this, is that we are always in context. You know, most systems and the will to system, as Foucault puts it, Michel Foucault puts it, the will to system, doesn't take generally account of the individual context that I find myself in. We are always in a context context. And I'm going to make a big suggestion. I know I'm making a lot of suggestions this evening. But here's a big one. Every situation that we find ourselves, particularly with an other, and that could be a human other, but it could be a non-human other, is an ethical context. It demands something of us. Yeah? It demands a responsiveness from us. And sometimes that, responsiveness might be reducible to something like the greatest good of the context and the community that I find myself in. It might require the development of a particular virtue, which I've stressed here at the beginning, of a particular virtue that brings us into some degree of connectedness. It might require us to almost universalize any particular judgment I make at this moment in time just for that moment of time and to say, this is what I would do in any similar situation. Yeah? But it's not reducible to any one of those because each situation is different. Each situation is changing. And as we probably know, and I think we've, I mean, I've certainly made these mistakes, and you probably have as well, is that you go to make, to say what you think is the right thing. The situation has changed almost in five minutes and you've said the wrong thing in that. So it's context sensitive. I would actually say, unlike these systems, of which of course Western thought is full of them and our, you know, our societies are often governed by ethical systems, um, it's no accident of course that uh, the one who invented utilitarianism, which is the kind of greatest good for the greatest number was British. Um, that these systems themselves are not sensitive enough for us to be able to apply them in a way that really meets the context often. Sometimes, fumblingly, they will do the right thing. What I would say about Buddhist ethics in this sense is it's not easy. And I have no apologies for that. Whatsoever, I have no apologies by saying that Buddhist ethics and the task it is setting you of how to behave is not easy. Yeah. Personally, again, I, and you probably gathered I'm trying to enthuse you a little here, I do think it is an exciting journey that we engage in on how to behave ethically. Not only is it exciting, it's absolutely radically important about how we are in this world day to day with our partners with our children with our families with our greater communities with with those who are completely different from ourselves and hold different values sometimes how can we often hold this with respect without wanting to reduce otherness, difference to the same Yeah, that's one of the things that you know societies often want to do is they want to reduce difference to sameness, and then it becomes understandable. How can we treat others respectfully in difference, not indifferent, but indifference? Here again, it's a task, and it requires a tremendous amount from you. Yeah both as in communities and individually, and actually also towards non-human others. How do we treat non-human others respectfully? This becomes a huge task for us. So we have a tool. That tool is, of course, bhavana. The cultivation of degrees, not just of nice states of mind, but of sensitivities, of awareness, which will open us to situations and make us more responsive to situations. Can you see that? Does that make sense? We cultivate this tool of honing our awareness on the very practical level. It's there for other reasons as well, and I don't want to dismiss that. On the very practical level, because it sensitizes us to otherness, to difference, to actually my responsibility in situations. I love that word, responsibility.
1: Yeah.
0: I, it has a dual connotation, doesn't it? I can say it quickly, responsibility, or I can say response ability, the ability to respond in a situation.
1: Yeah.
0: And in fact, in some Buddhist languages, and certainly in Tibetan language, that's exactly the way you translate the ethical task, as responsibility and compassion gets translated in some texts as responsibility.
1: Yeah.
0: The ability to be responsive To others in our situations that we find ourselves in. That is not easy. I don't want to kind of make you feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, but it does require a tremendous amount of us. And I think, and I hope, that you've realized actually this path demands a tremendous amount of you. It demands a tremendous amount of you, not just in the ethical domain, but also in every other domain of our lives, in the domain of dealing with our difficulties, in the domain of that which can't be changed, in the domain of that which is impermanent, in the domain of our mortality. All of these things are what we're being challenged to deal with. I've said it so many times in this room, I'll give you a crude translation of the Buddha's words, his final words, and it is a crude translation. There's much more elegant ones, and I'm sure a I'll get back at him tonight. A will tell you the elegant version, I'll tell you the inelegant version. Absolutely everything you're going to encounter is impermanent, now get on with it. (laughs) That's the inelegant version. What it's saying is, we're going to encounter so many difficulties, and of course, one of the major difficulties, not a great revelation, I think, as a Kinchino revealed to you, is that things are impermanent. Situations are impermanent, lives are impermanent, the world is impermanent. Now, how do we live our lives? How do we live well in that situation? Egoism itself, which I kind of criticized using that, you know, obviously that extract from. From uh, Virginia Woolf, egotism itself is a, is a retreat into the self, to aggrandize it, to make it something solid and secure in a frightening world. Because if everything else is changing, at least one thing is not changing, and it might be me. Yeah. <laughs> I would actually, the Greek have a, Greeks have a wonderful word for it. It's called hubris. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is rather hubristic thinking or rather arrogant thinking, if you want to put it in another way. That we can think that we can retreat into something inward that's going to be stable and certain and I know who I am. Now you heard the last night opening up this sense of self. I'm not going to go into the details that he went into, but one of the things that you get from this Buddhist notion of anatta, is the idea that this isn't stable. The self that we look at, that we think is ourself, isn't a stable phenomena. It's actually a changing phenomena. It's a process. Yeah. Every time we try to pin ourselves down, we find ourselves receding. Every time I try to pin you down, you recede from me. Yet we try to do it, don't we? think of how you feel on the receiving end of that when somebody tries to do that to you, you know, and says well this is the sort of person you are how do you feel <laughs> you feel rather attacked don't you often you feel well yes sometimes uh, but not always and certainly not now <laughs> yeah this is what we do. We do this to ourselves. We do this to others. We try to reify them into something. Yeah. Into a something. We do this with our friends, our partners, you know, our loved ones. It's about knowability, it's about control, it's about security, of wanting to keep things stable. And I would suggest, actually, sometimes this borders into the unethical because it becomes about how can I control you because I think I know you as an object. Yeah. If I actually say, well, this is the sort of person you are, it means I can manipulate you a bit better.
1: Yeah?
0: I can control you just a little bit better. And when people are doing that to us, of course we know that. That's why we we're, were resistant to it, aren't we? We're resistant to that attempt to control us in that way so when we talk about the self here, the self is changing contexts are changing everything around us is changing then the task of what we are calling ethics, the way of dwelling and I'm trying to broaden this out now, this way of dwelling, not just in the moral rules that our society sets us, but the task of being ethical, of being responsive to that other person. Let's just stick with persons for the rest of this talk this evening. But with other person, to be ethical in regard to that person requires a lot from you.
1: Yeah?
0: Hence the reason why we need that sensitivity, which often is given to us by our meditative practices. By the kind of practices that we engage in. By directing our minds, inclining our minds in this way that the Buddha says, towards friendliness, even if we don't feel it. (laughs) Even if we don't feel it inclining our minds towards that degree of friendliness. In doing so, we bring out qualities, virtues, which are there. Because actually, none of these qualities and virtues that are spoken of in Buddhism are unknown to you. The genius of this character who we call the Buddha was he spoke to dimensions of experience that you already know because they've been present in your life already. So we all know what friendliness is. Let's take that just as a virtue. We all know what it is to be friendly. might be to your dog, to your pet. More likely it's going to be to your loved ones and your friends, literally your friends around you and your circle. But it doesn't get much wider, does it, usually? It stays in that narrow, and then there's the outsiders, those who are not included in that circle, who I won't let in in that way. And I don't show that friendship, too, that friendliness, the face of friendliness, the eye of viewing that person. We know it ourselves when we've been, if you like, when somebody has shone that light of the eye of friendliness on ourselves. We've experienced it, haven't we? Somebody who's been distressed at our pain in compassion. Yeah. And again, it might be a family member, but it might be, in the odd occasion, somebody outside of your circle.
1: Yeah.
0: I'm always astonished at you know, just how, you know, when really it's required, some people suddenly bring up this sense of compassion which they don't exhibit in their normal lives, and it's suddenly there in life, helping somebody who's been injured, perhaps, there in situations where you might not expect it. So, none of these qualities are unknown to us, but what is being required of us is the task of developing them, honing them, making them shine, making them bright in our lives. And I'll give you another quotation, which I think, in a sense, captures this same idea. And this is, again, from somebody from the Hellenistic world, somebody called Plotinus. And it's a little piece out of one of his early texts, which is called On Sculpting Your Own Statue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you do not see your beauty, do as the sculpture does, sculptor does with a statue, which must become beautiful. He gently removes one part, carefully scrapes another, makes an area smooth, and cleans the other until he causes the beautiful face in the statue to appear. In the same way, you too must remove everything that is superfluous. Straighten that which is crooked and purify all that which is impure until you make it brilliant. Never stop, never stop sculpting your own statue until the splendor of your virtue shines in you. There's your task, <laughs> to sculpt your own statue. Now, obviously, this is, is a lovely metaphor, and the Buddhist path doesn't use the same metaphor, but I think we know what we mean by this. You know, often, we can only see our virtues in relationship to that which is not so virtuous, yeah. that which blocks the development of it. And a lot of the exploration, a lot of the journeying, a lot of the discoveries, is actually about understanding that. Understanding what inhibits our development of friendliness. Again, to keep that as an example at the forefront of our minds. What inhibits that friendliness? What stops it from developing? Coming face-to-face with the aversion, coming face-to-face with the dislike. Learning to scrape it away a little bit for something else to start to shine through. This is our task, and this is a task for life. And I mean that in both senses, for going out into your life and for the whole of your life to do this. So it requires something else, which the Buddha speaks about and is there in these many, many lists that we find um, in Buddhism, as you probably know when you go through the, you know, the early text, in particular if you've ever read any of those great tomes like the one that uh, Kinchino held up last night, you'll see that they're full of lists. You know, Buddhists are list fetishists. You know, they just love lists for very pragmatic reasons, but they're there. But within these lists you'll find things like effort and energy that's required to develop, to enter into this. So, when we're on our cushion, putting energy in, developing, seeing what's required for these, you know, for insight to arise, we are actually honing and creating a resource for ourselves in that difficult situation of how we behave, seeing what this situation demands, what is our responsibility in this situation. At its barest minimum, of course, you know, one of the Buddha says one of our duties almost is to try and decrease the amount of harm that we inflict as we move through life. Yeah. As we move through life, trying to decrease that amount of harm, which is so sometimes unwittingly performed because we're not sensitive. To the situation. We say the wrong thing, we do the wrong thing, and again, we find that in agitation, in the so-called hindrances, in remorse that comes up. Oh, I shouldn't have said that, or I should have said that, I shouldn't have done that, or oh, I should have done that. Yeah. It's a lot of our agitation, isn't it, about things either said or done, and things left unsaid or undone in our lives that we can trace, yeah. And all of this, as I say, is our task to do this. To look at also our, what I call, it sounds very grandiose, but I hope I can make it much plainer, our gestural response to being in this world. How we comport ourselves in this world. In our gestures. Because our speech might be right, but our gestures are completely wrong. Out of line with... Our speech, yeah, just like what we emphasise and have stressed so far, the embodied nature of the intention, and I haven't even got there yet, and I'm running rapidly out of time. Um, but the important nature of intention within all of this, yeah, chetana, this word that really is about volition and intention and the ways that we do things, you know, what we, the energy we put. The intention becomes all important behind what we're doing, and the intention becomes embodied, doesn't it, as we sit? It's been emphasized, I think, by all of us. This, when we come to sit, is an embodied intention. This is why we hold this posture in this particular way. Yeah? We know so, so much that it's, that it's different to hold ourselves in that erect, open stance. Which is receptive, open, awake, alert, hopefully, to what is arising to, "I'm just going to meditate." <laughs> 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 yeah. And actually the same is true for every other aspect, and particularly in our ethical interrelations with others.
1: Yeah?
0: Our ethical interrelations with others is there within the openness of our gestures within our hands, within our facial expressions. We all call this, we reduce it simply to body language, I think it's far more than that. It's the embodied intention behind being open and receptive and willing to engage with somebody even if they're difficult. This is ethics. This is how we dwell with others. And again, if you don't mind another quotation, let me give you another quotation. It's a quotation from Rilke. It occurs in one of his elegies. Forgive me just while I find it. Come on, don't do that to me. Okay. And he's reflecting on some ancient tombstones that he sees um, in the second elegy of these Greek attic tombstones outside of Athens. and He says, weren't you astonished by the caution of human gestures in those gravestones? Wasn't love and departure placed so gently on shoulders that it seemed to be made of a different kind of substance than that found in our world? Remember the hands, how weightlessly they rested, though there was power in their torsos. These self-mastered figures knew we can go this far, this is ours, to touch one another in this light way. The gods can press down hard upon us, but that's the gods' affair. How often can we say that, that our gestures really reflect that sense of lightness of being, that ability to... And think about the hand itself as an ethical having ethical significance here. How we can literally touch others and we can harm others with those very same hands. That's the significance, both the literal and the metaphor of touch. To be touched and to be touching. And I would suggest that in this task, this big, big task, which I am calling ethics, not just the morals which govern us and are very important, but the sensibility that we're developing towards others, and particularly the harmlessness. It really is at the heart of the Buddha's take on the ethical forms of behaviour that we should again embody in our lives. That that harmlessness is there within our speech, within our touch, and of course we touch others with our speech. We can exhort, we can bring out something with others, but we can also harm, we can push away, we can inflict violence. The Buddha says about that kind of speech, beware of the dagger behind the teeth. I think it's a very... indicative image, isn't it, behind, you know, we can shove in the dagger of of the word just as much as we can literally push in the dagger uh, in a physical sense here. So all of this is hopefully just giving you a sense, just a basic sense of what it means to live ethically, to take this practice and to utilize this practice in such a way that it supports that ethical inquiry. Not as if there's ethics over here and there's the practice over there. That the two are interrelated, that the two interfuse, they support each other. That our relationship between this ethical sensibility that we develop is not to be seen in isolation outside of our communal moralities that we agree to adhere by because they help to support us in, our degree, in a degree of respectfulness uh, within our communities. If we isolate and compartmentalize, we divide up, I think, the dynamic of what this path is about, which is this integration. Yeah? This integration is so that no part of your life is untouched by what we do if it doesn't reach those parts, it's somehow not working. It really should touch every part of your life. And when we start talking about, you know, seemingly this abstract thing called ethics, well, it ain't so abstract, is it? It comes down right to the basic dynamics of the way that we dwell in this world. And that's what we're talking about, this dwelling in the world. How do I dwell? how do I want to live in this world how can I sculpt my own statue in this world not in isolation but in this world how can I let these virtues that the Buddha speaks about so much how can I bring them to the forefront not in you know, kind of leaving that shadow again that Kinshino alluded to last night of the stuff which is unexamined. We do this in relationship to all of that stuff. You know, the resistances. The dark side of our natures, if we want to use that as a term, which is not a very helpful term. But this other side, the other. Why do we treat the other so abysmally? Sometimes because we treat the other within so abysmally. the psychological other who always dwells in ourself, in that that degree of otherness that we don't want to acknowledge, we don't want to see, and it's not really us because we have some ideal about who we are, which is fixed. This is developmental. We're talking about the development of psychologically wholesome ways of being in this world you know just to finally finish i can say that was actually that was what attracted me to this path in the first place when i first encountered it this was about being well in the true sense and flourishing in that eudaimonic sense that the greeks talk about flourishing as well as you can not by some idealization and the imposition of an ideal but actually in the development of psychological virtues which are there within us and fully acknowledge sides which are also pulling against that. So in that openness of compassion, there is often the pull of egotism, of the I, of the dislike, of the resentment, of all those other factors that come in. Uh, into play as well. So it's in full acknowledgement of that that you are sculpting your statue, in full acknowledgement and full recognition of that. And so that is why we do the work that we do on the cushion. But I would say, to kind of finish this off, that becomes in the service of how we dwell in this world ethically and, to an extent, morally in this world because it's about our interrelatedness. If we want to live in isolation, it's quite possible to do that and have wonderfully gooey thoughts sitting at the top of a mountain until you get into that messy business of being with people. The hermit can sit on the top of the mountain having wonderfully elevated thoughts until they have to actually come down off the mountain. We're actually off the mountain. This is where we dwell, where we have to develop our sense of being with others as ethically and as wholesomely as possible and that is the task. Thank you everybody. Thank you for your attention. Okay, Okay, so we have about half an hour for walking and then to come back for a short sit at the end of the day. Okay.